I invite you now to turn in your Bibles or to find in the bulletin the scripture passage that we'll consider and meditate upon this morning. Psalm 4. Psalm 4. It's always a joy to read and preach from the Psalms, just to encourage as well uh, in the regular practice in life as Christians, uh, more diligent use of the Psalms, which take us by the heart, as it were, um, take our heart by, our hand, by the hand of the Lord and guides us forward through all of life's circumstances and trials. And so the Lord is taking uh, our heart in this way and guiding us forward and invites us to use the Psalms in this way throughout life's journey. So with that, I ask you to quiet your hearts now to hear the reading of God's holy word. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Well, so far the reading of God's holy and inspired word, may he write it upon our hearts as we meditate on it this morning. Well, naturally, all of us, we want a theology of glory, as it's called. What that means is that we like the mountaintop experiences in life, where everything seems bright and sunny and warm, pleasant. But none of us wants or desires to go through the valleys, the valleys where it's dark, scary, and cold. Well, intellectually, all of us here might agree with the theology of the cross, and yet, nobody wants to experience personally and experience the theology of the cross. And still, we have to remember, we always have to remember that the way to the banquet of green pastures, as Psalm 23 says, is first through the valley. There is no way around it. As Christians, we believe that our good shepherd, he leads us straight through the valley of the shadow of death to a banquet table on the other side. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Philippians 1.29. He says, It has been granted to you, Christians, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This is what has been granted to us, set before us. And so, loved ones, following Jesus, it means facing various kinds of trials in the road ahead. 
the valleys of suffering for his sake, as the Apostle Paul says, they are in your future, near or far. And Jesus will call you to go through those valleys, whatever they might be. And since that is the case, since that is the reality before us, it is unavoidable that we must go through, how can we prepare ourselves to walk through them? How can we keep alight in the midst of the valley our faith and our hope? How can we still have peace and joy? Well, this psalm, this psalm is for us a guide. It has been called a chosen flower taken from the garden of affliction. And so like a, like a hummingbird that, that hovers over a flower for a time, drawing out of it all of its sweetness, so we too must hover here and meditate over God's word, this psalm, until we draw out of it all of its sweetness, all of its richness, to better learn how to walk through those valleys. And as we do, we will find that King David's faith in this circumstance, when he wrote this psalm, or afterwards as he was meditating on it, that David's faith was under fire. It was under fire. And why? While others were attacking his reputation and his dignity. And in the midst of that trial, in that valley, David is pleading here with God. And he's also dealing with his own heart in the midst of the trial as well. And in that process, he then comes and directs himself to us, to teach us to do the very same when we find ourselves under pressure or in a various kind of trial. This psalm has more or less three movements that we'll consider today. First, we find David under fire in verses 1 through 3. And then he sits quietly in verses 4 through 5. And lastly, David waits for what is good in verses 6 through 8. So first, he's under fire in verses 1 through 3, where he starts off saying, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. There's an interesting philosophical question that goes like this. When a tree falls in a forest far from human ears to listen, does it still make a sound? A tree, trees are falling in the forest far away from humans at this point. Is it still making a sound, a thud, if no one is there to hear it? Well, I think David, in some ways, in various psalms, but here as well, probably felt like that under fire. Can God, you hear me? In my desperation, answer me when I call. Be not silent. Hear my cry for help, which comes from a place of silence, a place of waiting on God to respond to his specific needs. The experience of silence, it's very interesting because at first, silence can be very peaceful, right? We all long for those moments of silence where it's peaceful, tranquil, and we can meditate. But too much silence for too long becomes petrifying, petrifying. It reminds me of a movie called Gravity. It came out a few years ago starring Sandra Bullock, and she's this astronaut who happens to find herself in a, in a very difficult situation trapped inside of a small space capsule that's orbiting Earth with no form of communication to NASA below. She has no way of asking or seeking help, no way of communicating. She can see her home and her family down on Earth as she's 
orbiting in this small, tight little capsule, but she has no way out. She's trapped in. It's interesting that she finally ends up uh, being able to communicate with someone on an AM radio, but that person speaks Chinese, and so she, she can't understand and communicate and ask for help. And yet she's elated to hear the voice of another human breaking through the silence, which was deafening for her. I think that's what David call, is calling God to do, to break through the silence and bring him relief. It's interesting that David calls upon God, his creator, saying, God of my righteousness. It's interesting because this is a unique title in all of the Bible. This is the only place where this is found in reference to God. So what does it mean, God of my righteousness? Well, it means that God is the author, the witness, the sustainer, and the judge, and the vindicator of his righteousness. David here, he's asking that God would come to his defense in his time of need, especially because others were rejecting him and slandering him with all kinds of lies. And so he's asking that God would come to his defense. And we know from the historical accounts about David's life that at different times people did accuse him of all kinds of things, slandered him with lies. King David was assaulted with lies from Saul and his own wife and then his own son, Absalom, who accused him of wrongdoing, and they pursued these lies in order to kill him, to get rid of him. And so David's asking that God would come to his defense. And so we, we learn here, and we might not be accustomed to this, but we learn here that in certain instances, in certain situations, it is appropriate to cite our innocence to God our relative innocence, when you're in the right in a circumstance and others are accusing you of wrong. It's impossible, as we confess and believe, it's impossible to be completely innocent or righteous before God, but it is possible in certain instances to be a victim of injustice. And in such moments, we learn the importance of taking our case, not necessarily to the small courts of human opinion, but to the king himself, bringing it before God who is our vindicator, who is our defense and our refuge. And so that's what we find David doing in the beginning of the psalm here. And he says, You have given me relief in the next verse. When I was in distress, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. The Hebrew word behind give relief here, it means to literally create a wide space or room to free you from restrictive circumstances and a restrictive need. In fact, the word for distress, in connection with that, it means a place that is narrow, tight, narrow straits, kind of like a valley. And so an idiom that captures this is, once I was in a tight place and you gave me room. God had opened a way for David to escape before, even when he was trapped in a bad situation, pressed in from all sides, and so he's asking that God would do the same again. Now, what does this remind us of? This being pressed in by all sides, seeking for a way out, a way through an impossible circumstance. What else in redemptive history does that remind us of? The, the Exodus event, right? With Israel. As God led them to the edge of the Red Sea, they looked back at the Egyptians that were pursuing them and they cried out to God in complaints because they had no way forward. 
No way backward, no way sideways. They were completely trapped in a tight space with no room for escape. And so they cried out to God, and Moses responded on behalf of God, saying, Fear not, stand firm, and see that the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and, have, and you have only to be silent. And that's what God did. He did fight for them. He gave them room, opening up the Red Sea, that they would walk with space on safe ground, liberating them from that tight space, liberating them from that tight circumstance. He gave them liberation. And so we see that David, in his trial in the Narrows, he remembered the mercies that God had previously shown him and to his people. By looking to the past, God's faithfulness, he was strengthened for the future and strengthened in his own difficult circumstance. And so this was his main request here, that as you did before, O Lord, do so again in my life. Get me out of this mess. Give me comfort. Strengthen me. So, loved ones, we find great application here for ourselves, for our hearts, that when you, when you find yourself in the narrows, when it seems like there is no good way out of a cir- circumstance, well, fear not. Remember all that God has already done for you personally in your life. And he has done great and marvelous things for you if you recollect in all the blessings that he has given you, especially in Christ. But then also all that he has done in redemptive history Recall what he has done and be strengthened by the past, remembrance of his faithfulness for the future and for tomorrow. And so we must learn the habit here of reminding ourselves of those things that tend to strengthen our faith. The Lord will fight for you. Remember to whom you belong and call upon him in your time of need. And so we find that David, in the beginning here, he's dealing with his God, asking for him to supply what he needs And the next verse, then David turns to men, where he says, O sons of men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? We find that David here, he's he's, uh, addressing his accusers directly. See how David, he, he doesn't call them out by name, these accusers. These who are slandering him, which is always a, temp- a temptation for us. It's always tempting to slander those who are slandering us. We think to ourselves, we have the temptation that, well, they have dragged my name and my reputation through the mud with lies, so why not defame them with the truth? Why not declare the truth that they might face what's coming to them? But we don't see him doing that. He doesn't do that here. He doesn't stoop to their level. And why not? Why not? Well, first, he recognizes that, as he calls them, they are sons of men. And so, what did you expect? What do you expect from sons of men? They are the children of Adam, sinners by birth. And again, we remember that Adam, in the beginning, he bit into the lie of the serpent. And now we must expect that the lips of his children will drip with the venom of lies. This is the expectation that we should have. Sin in the sons of men should not surprise us. It is to be expected. In fact, the reality that we are not all worse than we currently are is evidence of God's restraining grace. And so this is to be expected. 
But just because injustice is to be expected doesn't make it necessarily easier to deal with, right? And so how did David keep his composure and not fall into the same thing as them, responding, reviling, and slandering them in return? Well, in the next line, we see him meditate on how God had set him apart for himself. This is key. He says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. What is David remembering? David is calling to mind that time when God had sent the prophet Samuel to anoint David with oil as a true king of Israel, God's special chosen man. And what that meant to David personally and practically was massive. It meant this, that everyone may hate me. Everyone may reject me and even seek to kill me. But God has chosen me in love for himself. And that grounded him. That kept him firm in his faith. John Calvin says the cause of David's bravery consisted in this, that he depended on God the founder of his kingdom. Uh, now you might be saying in response, well, that's, that's easy for David. He was anointed as king of Israel. Uh, who wouldn't feel special and chosen by God as the one who was anointed by a prophet to be king? Well, what about me? That might be true for him, but what about me? Well, let me ask the children of the congregation to see if you might answer this question rightly. What has God done for you to set you apart from the world? What did God do here in this place, most likely, to set you apart from the world and to set you apart for himself, showing you his love? What did he have sprinkled over top of your head? It's not the waters of your baptism, right? The waters of your baptism where we find that, like David, God has set his seal of love upon you setting you apart from the world, saying that you are mine, you belong to me, you are under the protection of my care and my promises. You see, how can we have that same confident composure that David had? Well, even in times of difficulty and rejection, we can remember our identity in Jesus by looking to our baptism, remembering the waters of our baptism, that we were baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We belong to Him. His promises have been declared over us. He set us apart with His seal upon us. And this grounds our identity in Christ. You know, we talked about this last year in one of our Friday night uh, fellowship groups and the discussion. We talked about this a lot, actually, that when your identity is rooted and grounded in Christ and what God has done for you and what He says about you, what He has declared over you, then it doesn't matter what people say about you personally. It doesn't matter what their opinion might be of you because the opinion that matters most is your creator, your redeemer, your king, the author and arbiter of truth. And in your baptism, God's visible word of love has been declared over you. You've been set apart from the world, beloved of the Father, justified in Christ and full of the Holy Spirit. So in the narrows, under fire, consider your baptism, and you too will have that same composure and confidence to stand firm in Christ, knowing that you are loved by him. So that's the first section of him 
in the narrows, under fire. Let's get to the second one, sitting in silence in verses 4 through 5, where David continues and says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Be angry and do not sin. Well, isn't this one of the hardest things in the midst of trials to do, to stay calm? It's so easy to be consumed by rage, as it were, or anger that starts to fill us up and to take things into our own hands and lash out at others with our words or our actions or even just our demeanor. Kind of like a cornered animal, right, that in fear lashes out at the person that's cornered them. We too do the same thing when we are in a tight, restrictive circumstance and we feel the fear upon us. And David says, it's fine to be angry. Even the, the Hebrew word here is tremble or quake in our bodies with anger. In a sense, it's fine to be there, especially when you've experienced injustice. But we must refrain from lashing out in sinful ways at other people. The Apostle Paul, he quotes this passage in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So how is it that when we are angry, cornered as it were, how do we keep from sin or from giving the opportunity to the devil? Well, David, he gives us some practical advice in this psalm here. The practical advice is basically close your mouth, go to your bed, be quiet in the silence, speak to your heart. The Hebrew word for ponder in this passage, ponder on your bed, is literally speak to or talk. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he aptly pointed out that the vast majority of the time in our life, we're not actually talking to ourselves. We're listening to our rambling thoughts, which are chaotic and often destructive. We're just listening to what's going on in our mind. We don't have much control. But from passages like this and other psalms, we learn the importance of taking our heart in hand and speaking to it, taking it and deliberately speaking to our heart words of truth, of God's promises. And so instead of letting our minds run with vain speculations about what the future might hold, or imaginations, or assumptions, but we need to learn the practice of dwelling in silence and speaking truth to ourselves from God's word. So you might not be called to be a preacher in your life, Uh, as your calling, but here God is calling you to preach the truth to your heart, day in and day out, to take your heart by hand and speak truth to it. And as David says here, one of the best places to do that is in the quiet place on your bed. Because, why? During the day, the day is filled with all kinds of busy distractions and people and the hustle and bustle of life. And so it keeps us from this important task of slowing down and pausing, reflecting, so we need to set aside time for this kind of heart work, really on a daily basis. As cliche as it might sound and often is, we do need quiet times to be with the Lord in prayer, to reflect, to speak to our heart the truth, to open up his word and have truth spoken to us. Just like you might need a massage at the end of a hard day from your spouse, 
right? Because your muscles get tense and you, you, need, you need that kind of massage to, to release the tension and get some good sleep. We also need the truth of God's word to massage out the tension of anger that is often built up in our hearts. And we need to do that. We need to have that practice of speaking the truth, massaging out the tension of the anger in our hearts and in the quiet spaces. In the next line, David gives us a bit more practical advice. He says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. And again, in despair or in anger, it's so easy to pray or fall prey to idleness, to not be active. We feel trapped. And so what do we do? We don't do anything when we feel trapped. We don't act. But David is here calling us to press on, to take that next step forward in faith, serving the Lord, offering up your ego, as it were, on the altar of his praise, trusting in him. He says, put our trust in the Lord, which is not an empty optimism, but a full hope. A hope of what? What do we expect from the Lord when we trust in him? And that's our last point. We find David waiting for what is good in verses 6 through 8, where David says, There are many who say, who will show us some good? Well, David, in this passage, he's directing our hearts to wait for what is good. But notice, it's not the good as defined by the world. Not health, not wealth, not riches. No. David specifically says in verse 7 that what he has is better than the time of harvest, when they have their grain and wine abounding. Far better than worldly prosperity or temporal blessings. David, we see, is not seeking the good that the many seek, but the good that the few seek. And he's calling us to do the same. He describes the good in the last verses of our passage. And there are three benefits it will touch briefly here. And this is exactly the relief that David was seeking in the very beginning when he's asking God to give him relief. One, the first thing is that the good that he waits for is God's face. God's face, his presence, as it were. As others turned their face against David, he sought the loving face of God upon him. Remember, others may look at you with scorn, with contempt, with hatred, But you can stand firm knowing that God the Father is smiling upon you in love. Or as we heard last week, he's singing and rejoicing over you in love because you belong to Jesus. You are washed in his blood and covered in his righteousness. And so David, that's the good he's seeking, the face of the Lord. Secondly, he waits for the good which is God's joy in his heart. We know that the joys of the world are fleeting. They're here today and gone tomorrow. And so David, he seeks here the deeper, fuller, eternal joy that only God can give us through Christ. It is the same joy that Peter calls inexpressible and filled with glory. Joy that is deep and full that comes from the Lord. And lastly, the third thing, the good that he waits for is God's peace, his peace, his shalom. The Spirit of God puts it in the heart of every believer this peace of God. It is a peace that sustains us at all times, knowing that whatever comes our way, as we will soon sing, it is well with our soul. Whatever comes our way, it is well with our soul. It is a peace 
that allows us to lie down each night, and it is the peace that ultimately, in the last moment of our life, will allow us and encourage us to entrust ourselves, body and soul, to God, even in death, knowing that as our body is laid to rest beneath the earth, that God will cause us to dwell with him in safety, that we still belong to him. It is a peace and a confidence that enables us to confront our last and greatest enemy, death itself, knowing that because Jesus died and rose again, he will raise us up as well on the last day. This is the peace of God that Paul says surpasses all understanding. The promise of peace that gives us that confidence to face whatever foe is in our way. And so this is the good that David waited for, the face of the Lord, the joy in his heart, and the peace of God. And this is the joy, this is the good that it seems that he's found at the end of his prayer. The same relief that he sought for in the beginning, he seems to have at the end. And again, it reminds me of that movie with Sandra Bullock, the astronaut, who uh, in a very tight and difficult circumstance, seems like through a series of miraculous events, she ends up again back on earth and the doors of her tiny little space capsule in which she was trapped are opened and she she finds herself on a beach and just basically hugging the earth and so glad to be brought home again gravity brought her home and so too here at the close of his prayer the gravity the weightiness of god's faithfulness has brought david to a place of stability and rest in his god and this can be true of us as well, because we belong to Jesus, who is David's son and yet David's Lord, who, like David, experienced all kinds of slanderous lies that were thrown at him and who was rejected and despised and cornered by the sons of men. And yet, we read how he responded in 1 Peter 2. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you too might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We could say the God of his righteousness. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So, loved ones, Jesus, yes, he will call you through, and maybe is currently calling you through a narrow valley in your life. Remember always that he has gone before us to secure a safe dwelling for us on the other side of the valley of shadow of death. He has secured for us a way, and he will shepherd your soul through the valley and give you room and give you comfort and consolation and composure to stand firm through those trials. The Lord your God is with you and promises to give you safe dwelling both now and forevermore in him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that indeed as we will sing it is well with our souls because we belong to Jesus. That despite the fact that life is filled with trials and narrow straits and valleys that we must go through, that you have promised 
to guide us and to shepherd us through them. And that on the other side, in glory, awaits for us a banquet, a wonderful feast of rich food to delight our hearts and souls with your face, with your joy, with your peace. And even now in this life, you have given us the foretaste of those things to come. We have your smiling face upon us now in Christ. We have your joy, which is inexpressible and filled with glory. And we have your peace, which surpasses understanding. Lord, may you cause us to stand firm with confidence and composure, knowing that you have set us apart, you've called us, you have loved us, and we belong to you. And we belong to you forevermore. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.